This is the Shift Podcast. Today on the Shift Podcast, it's hard to be a comedian, but one man mastered the art and shared it with so many. Mentored some of the biggest comedians of all time. Del Close helped Tina Fey, Bill Murray, John Belushi, and so many more become superstars. We speak with Heather Ross, director of a documentary on Del Close's life. On the technological world, Blaine Kylo was on vacation. So we did the segments ourselves, and it was terrible, but still informative, even though it was quite dreadful. Ryan highlights more about the computer chip shortage, how computers can be burning up too much power, and Brendan talks about this very sad story about vinyl records getting shipped and melting in the mail because it's been so hot. Plus, are you okay with trailer parks, and are you okay with swinger trailer parks? It's time now for Are You Okay? Are you okay with trailer parks? Not in tornado country. Oops. That was my bad. Uh, absolutely. Uh, yeah, that's spooky. I I was hesitant, but I went to, I stayed at a trailer park once in Ontario for vacation, and it was one of mm-hmm. the best vacations I ever had. It was awesome. I guess it was more of a mobile home park, but mm-hmm. it's cool. I don't. I can't imagine living in one just because it's usually not in an area close to anything that I would enjoy. Uh, but they're they're cool for kinds. vacation. Yeah, yeah. There are the campground kinds. trailer parks, right? And then there are the mobile home parks. And I know that if you've ever lived in a mobile home, um, you know, some family of mine have lived had a mobile home, right? And thing in the winter time, there's no basement, so you got to keep those pipes insulated, and you know there can be a lot of headaches there. But it can be substantially cheaper. So, depends on what's your jam, right? Uh, many people use trailer arcs as if trailer. Many people use trailer arcs. That's a typo. Many people use trailer parks as a vacation spot or a home. How about this idea? Because there is a bit of a stereotype in the camping community. A group in Louisiana has found a new way to use trailer parks. This trailer park is for swingers, and it's called T-Boys Swinger Trailer Park. Their motto, you ready for the motto? Always. Their motto for T-Boys Swinger Trailer Park is this. Bring your house and share your spouse. Oh wow! I like it. That's creative. They're just putting oh, it all out there. Very good. Yeah. Wow. Now, if we apply the Louisiana part to that, bring your house and share your spouse. Sounds even better. Here's more from KLFY News. Since putting up this sign, Oakland's gotten calls from swingers across the country. We have got some from Pennsylvania. We have got some from Arkansas. Of course, all around Acadiana, all around Mamou, Ville Platte, Lafayette, Baton Rouge, New Orleans, Slidell. We have text messages from all over the country. It's mind-boggling. He says they're getting so many calls, they can barely keep up with it. Most of them call or text just to see if it's real. Just to see if somebody's going to answer, because they're going to say, oh, no, nobody's there. It's not a real number. Or they'll get on Facebook, oh, it's not a real number. I got on there and I said, I'd be a fat frog's butt if it's not a real number. Everybody starts calling. And they start calling, hey, what's your address? Where is it? Is this in my room? Is this, where is this at? Yes, it is. The sign for this swingers community says you have to send a picture of your spouse for approval. But Oquan says... That was more of a joke to kind of ease up the, the people and just to create a vibe. People went further with it than you would imagine. We've gotten many pictures and many phone calls and many text, voicemails. Unreal. And Oakland says that's for the haters. Sucks to be them. Yeah. <laughs> Amazing. Although he didn't say they have any customers. He said they got lots of phone calls. Well, it doesn't open <sighs> for a long time. Oh. It's not it's they're still building it and if you read the script uh i've i've included some of the amenities that you can expect mm-hmm. to enjoy at this luscious trailer park luscious probably not the best word um here uh, so i'm gonna read oh i'm gonna read it ryan because it continues the sign says the park is 
set to open this year. Uh, I yeah, well, that, that's a typo. Oh well, yep. There's a there's a <laughs> word that should have been deleted. <laughs> uh, the park includes opening next year a nude pool. Ooh, as you would expect. Nice. You thought campground pools were <laughs> already. <laughs> a nude yoga stadium. Oh no, you can't do that. A yoga stadium. nude yoga and a stadium. No, I Very would nice. imagine it's like a yoga studio, but yeah. with <laughs> seated viewers. Oh dear. <laughs> a strip poker hall. Okay, well, and a key party <laughs> banana. What's the point of the strip po- poker hall if everyone's already nude? Uh very good point. Um, I just find the fact that poker is the game they choose. Yeah. It could be a gambling yeah. hall. Uh, but the fact that it's a poker hall is uh, it's funny to me. Uh, key party cabana where you throw your keys in a bowl and then you leave the cabana. The owner, the owners say. Oh, wow. That's a typo. The owners. I got to yeah, I got to pull a little love into this. Hang on a second. This isn't working for me. Congratulations. You have found the secret typo. Does that work this time? The third one. (laughs) I'm going to put a little flair on this and try and try this part again. You ready? Here we go. He's got a nude pool, a nude yoga stadium, strip poker hall, and a key party cabana, baby. The owners say, can choose to live. <laughs> well, that's where you say it in an accent, like the owner's side can choose to live. <sighs> okay, well, if we're gonna do it that way here, let me fix this then. <sighs> okay. <laughs> now go ahead. <laughs> okay, you want me to do it? Okay. Yeah, you gotta do it. Okay, this park's set to open next year. We've got ourselves a new pool, nude yoga stadium, a strip poker hall, and a key party cabana. The owners say you could choose to live at the trailer park, but he's designed it to operate more like a campground where swingers can come for party-themed weekends. Shook them up. <laughs> All right. Well, baby. If that's your jam, next summer, bring your house and share your spouse. Oh, wow. In Louisiana. I, I, I still think they should advertise the strip poker first, because when it comes third like that, it's it's like you're already nude. Can we, like, it is absolutely creepy and gross, but can we just acknowledge the idea of a nude yoga stadium as being a thing? <laughs> yeah. Yeah, no, I think nude yoga is bad enough, but when you add stadium to the mix. There are people in this world. This world is so creepy, I think, with the internet and some of the things people do on the internet. You could probably yeah. put stadium seating in any yoga studio and probably sell tickets. Uh, That's how creepy yeah, this world yeah. can get. All right. Uh, I wish we hadn't done this story next, but here we are. Are you okay? Are you okay with fine dining? Not when I'm paying, but otherwise, yeah. <laughs> uh, fine dining is, is a lot of fun because it's very yummy. <laughs> and you and you feel, you know, you fancy... And you dress up all nice, and then even you get all dressed up for your date, and you look across the bar, and there's somebody wearing shorts and a baseball cap turned backwards, mm-hmm. <laughs> and paying for like a six hundred dollar meal. Uh, I, I it's nice I every think now and then. Fine dining is a wonderful, beautiful experience if you're at a place that actually is fine dining, not just really good food that's way too expensive. I think that is a yeah. determining factor, right? Like fine dining with an artisan chef that creates things that you cannot get anywhere else and sometimes those meals are tiny 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 but they're like little works of art and flavors that you could never have imagined before that to me is fine dining that's worth paying for but if you're going and you're going to fine dining and paying a premium when your steak comes on on a sizzling frying pan filled with butter that's not fine dining that's just a really expensive steak yeah well, what about appreciating some of the finer sides of dining and maybe foods? 
perhaps some escargot or a nice sizzling butter fried steak or how about some french fries for fine dining well most people love french fries and even the fancy restaurants have their own renditions of french fries a restaurant uh the restaurant serendipity three in New York, already claims the world record for the most expensive burger at over $300 Canadian. Better be good. I'd hope so. Probably not better than a Big Mac, honestly. They also serve the most expensive ice cream sundae in the world, which will cost you $1,000. That's absurd. Now you can get some fries to have with your burger and dip it in your $1,000 ice cream. Guinness World Records certified the feat. As of July 13th, the fries are officially the most expensive on earth. So here is a description of those $200 fries written by Reuters. Why don't we set the scene with a little bit of appropriate non-Louisiana bring your spouse, but the fine dining with expensive French fries music. You want a French accent? Is that what you're doing here? Oh, absolutely. (laughs) What better way to do it? Come on. You're so much better with accents. The creme de de la creme pan free start out with shipperback potato. They are not blanched or scalded in vinegar or champagne. Then they fry pure goose fat. Not oil, the goose fat. And not once. But dos, that's Spanish. Two times. <laughs> so they are crispy on the outside and fluffy. Oh, so fluffy on the inside. Sprinkled with edible gold and seasoned with le sel de truffle and l'huile de truffle. That is my bad French for truffle salt and oil. They are served on a crystal plate with an orchid thin sliced truffles and morning cheese dip le dip de fromage le sauce <laughs> to <laughs> aussi is infused with truffle a rare seasonal champignon or you peasants call a mushroom why do we need this fritz right now well here's creative director and chef joe calderon to explain why Well, Serendipity is really a happy place. Um, People come here to celebrate, to really escape the reality of life sometimes and have fun. And we're all about fun and we have been for almost 67 years. I I mean, it's been a rough year and a half for everyone and we need to have some fun now. And make money. Yeah. Can I just say, um, with that accent, though, um, you should be the announcer at the nude yoga stadium. <laughs> <laughs> she is taking her clothes off as the instructor oh, looks yeah. on from a distance. Pass the touch. Pass the touch. Um, okay, so $200. He says that they're, you know, they're looking to have some fun and set free $200 for French fries. Incredibly, here's an eight to ten week wait list for the fries, and I, maybe they're still chasing the goose, <laughs> trying to find the fat. Um, uh, pardon me for sniffling on the air. Um, the uh, okay, so <laughs> I would like to apologize for all of the proper French speaking people. Uh, that was meant to be fun because <laughs> I love the French language, I really do, and I'm serious about that. It's the one language in in the world that I, I'm I'm determined to get uh, completely fluent in. Uh, before I die. Are you okay? Are you okay with karate classes? I used to be in karate classes. I got orange up to orange black stripe. But then I, I quit after my sensei asked me to punch him. And he just laughed when I punched him. Because I <laughs> so weak. I was like, I don't like this guy anymore. Done. But my friend's a black belt, it? though, which is neat. Yeah, I think it's cool. I think karate's pretty sweet. Absolutely. I think all martial arts are amazing. I think the self-discipline that it teaches the young folks is pretty great. People put their kids in classes. Others take it to learn how to defend themselves. 
Others take it until their sensei laughs at them, and then they just leave. So what about the uh, flight attendants in the U.S. taking it to defend themselves? Some passengers have been so unruly, drunk, or violent that incidents on planes are skyrocketing. I'd like to include the fact that planes sell alcohol, to be clear. Um, so the attendat stat tell. <laughs> wow. That's like three That's in. So the attendant attendant dat stat tell us. Wait a minute. Wait a minute. Wait a minute. Are you okay? Wait, because what the heck happened here? I honestly, looking at this, guys, this is not a typo. This is like, I think my computer is haunted. I don't know. I can't even spell that bad. I think, no, it's so the attendants that tell us to take our seats. Yeah. It's absolutely a typo. It's like you fell asleep halfway through a sentence, hit your head that on the keyboard, and then woke up and was like, oh, right, working. I, I was a little I, full from my lobster roll. Must I, have fallen asleep and taken a nap on my computer. Yeah, I think you're. It's definitely uh, showing that you're definitely, you know, off next week. This is not mail it in Friday. It's mail it in week. <laughs> or maybe you're just drunk on a flight when you wrote this. So the attendants that tell us to take our seats, serve us that alcohol and the peanuts might soon be able to kick your ass too. Here's more from CNN. You are going to possibly die. You need to defend yourself at all costs. If this Undercover federal air marshals are guiding eight flight attendants through this self-defense course, the first class offered by the TSA since training was paused by the pandemic. It's sad that it needs to happen. Flight attendant Carrie is taking this class, having just returned to her airline following a leave of absence. Are you scared? Sometimes, a little bit, yeah. You get on a plane full of people and some of them aren't very happy and you just never know what's going to happen. Federal documents detail how passengers have shouted down, grabbed, and struck flight attendants thousands of times since the start of a zero-tolerance policy earlier this year. Okay. Amid the return to air travel this year, the number of unruly and violent passengers is spiking. More than 100 incidents were reported to the Federal Aviation Administration in the last week for a total of 3,600 so far this year. Consider how many flights there have or have not been, too. In January, an unruly passenger tried breaking into the cockpit of a Delta Airlines flight bound for Tennessee from California. He was subdued by cabin crew and fellow passengers as the plane was diverted to New Mexico. Um, yeah, Mr. Miyagi might take you down on the airplane, which is great. I think, you know what? Give these people tools to oh, yeah. deal with. They shouldn't have to be police, uh, police people in the air. They shouldn't have to, first of all. I mean, this should not happen. If you are... Picking a fight with a flight attendant, I mean, wow, I feel so, sorry for you because that's got to be a really dark, unhappy place. But, um, but yeah, why not be able to defend yourself, you know, a little pressure point, a little pinch, a little magic, um, and, uh, and knock somebody out. I, I've always imagined like the Spock pinch, right? Sleeping. I realize it doesn't actually happen like that, but that'd be cool. 877-399-9898. I was uh, perusing through some of the text messages that came in. Oh, goodness. And, Shane, you sound like Arnold Schwarzenegger trying to speak Australian. <laughs> That's pretty good. <laughs> yeah, exactly. um, I love escargot. This is great. Um, fries better be stuffed with cheese and basil. Or onion rings. <laughs> ha, ha, stop it. There go the rest of your French listeners. Um, I mean, no, nothing bad about it. I'm sure French people make fun of English accents. Um, and you know what? If we can't make fun, in all the things about life, if we can't have fun with people's accents, because it's just, it is a real thing. I mean, that's crazy. In fact, I was in a conversation today where um, a French friend actually said a French, like a, a bad English accent on a French name. So like, if you think of a name like Martin, which would be like Martin, in French, but that's probably bad. But in, my French-speaking friend was telling a story about um, Martin and didn't say Martin and said not, not even Martin, properly rolling the R and all the things, but said it like an English person would say it. I mean, people get tangled up on it. I think it's fun. It's just life. Anyway, um, enjoy your $200 fries while you are watching your nude yoga and uh, make sure that the flight attendant doesn't uh, karate chop you on the neck. This is the Shift Podcast. You ever wonder where funny people get their funny? 
Like, are people really just sort of born funny? Or is it a bit of a tank that they fill up over the course of time? Because there was uh, people that I went to high school with. They were just always funny people. But now that they're older, I don't know if they're that funny anymore. And then there's these people that you knew when you were young. They were quiet, reserved, didn't say much. Turns out as adults, they're some of the funniest people you ever met. Like, what happened to this person that changed it? Well, maybe it's the influence of the people that walk into their lives. I don't know. Well, how cool is a job that gets to look at all of this? So joining me now uh, to dig into conversation is Heather Ross. Heather is um, a documentary producer, smart filmy person. Um, and that's the, that's the business card, uh, Heather, um, that, uh, that did exactly this. Released a documentary about some of not just the funniest people, but more so the influence of the funniest people. Heather, how are you? Hi, Shane. How are you? I'm good. Um, for Mad Men Only. For Mad Men Only. The stories um, of Del Close. Yeah. So were you curious about the funny? Or were you curious about Del Close? Or were you just, say, a Tina Fey fan and said, I wonder why she's so awesome? Like, how did you get into this? I would say it was all of the above, actually. I was, um, you know, I had first heard of Del Close when I was living in Chicago filming a documentary. It was a pretty serious documentary about teenage girls who were in prison. And I, you know, was a little apprehensive about going into that situation. I was expecting them to be a little bit, you know, tough on me and, 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 and tough in general. And what I found was that those girls were hilarious and so talented and so sharp in their humor. And it got me thinking, you know, I'd always been a lifelong comedy fan, but I was like, I think there might be an aspect of comedy that really is kind of a lifeline. Um, so while I was thinking about this, I was also hearing all these rumors throughout Chicago of this Rasputin-like character, Del Close, who had trained all of my heroes from, you know, working with Elaine May in the 50s to, you know, Bill Murray and John Belushi and Gilda Radner in the 70s to, yes, Tina Fey, a huge hero of mine. So, um, you know, the fact that he, you know, that there was one guy behind maybe like 25 of my favorite comics, I was like, that's a story. And then I heard that he was actually kind of a mess and that he, you know, often had a needle hanging out of his arm and was in and out of institutions, would direct, you know, Second City shows from, you know, an insane asylum, as they used to call them. Mm -hmm. And, um, you know, it just seemed like this, if I want to know about comedy and what it really is and should do, this is a guy I can learn it from. And that's where I started. I always, I always like it when comedians say things like, you know, just waiting for the funny to come. And it really seems to be a presence to something special that's inside them. Now, I suppose there's two conversations here. I, th I feel like there's sort of a cause and effect thing in, in what you've created in that the cause being all things Del Close and, you know, the, I would say love for improv or the life of improv that, that, that Del just, that was what it was. I don't even say one it lived into. It just like was. And then you have the effect part, which is all these people that were able to sort of sip the faucet, if you will. Um, so wh which, which way do you want to go with that? Well, I think that's interesting. And I think that um, what is interesting about Del Close is that, yes, you have improv for the love of improv, and then you have all the people that he influenced. And, and yes, I think when he was starting um, to say, yes, there's this thing called improvised comedy and people can actually make up hilarious and wonderful and rich things off the seat of their pants in the moment, no script, you know, people thought he was insane. I mean, and you know, maybe he was, and you know, it is, as we explore in the film, it took years and decades for that art form to find its legs because when it's great, it's great. And when it's not, it's really not. And, you know, audiences showing up for a comedy show tend to want to laugh. So, you know, there was a, a process of educating the audience and also educating themselves on how to make, how to channel their best instincts into being funny in the moment reliably over and over. And, um, 
you know, we kind of think of Dell close as a little bit of an astronaut in that he went out to these wild ideas, you know, went out to these far reaches of what we think is funny and what we would categorize as entertainment. And, you know, in his life went out to a lot of, you know, far reaches that many of us don't want to go to. We don't want to be, you know, living on a mattress at, you know, age five, 50. And like, you know, we don't want to be living this kind of like hard scrabble bohemian life that he always lived. But in going out to those reaches, he brings back something um, for the rest of us to channel into our work. And, you know, you, you see it in all these people who are not, you know, uh, lunatics or, you know, they, you know, you see it in Tina Fey and you see it in Amy Poehler and you see it in uh, Bob Odenkirk and you see it in really the dominant kind of form of, of comedy today that they didn't have to go so deep into the madness themselves. They could kind of take what was being uh, filtered to them by people like Del. I like the, uh, the astronaut is, is neat. Cause it makes me, cause my, my next question that I, I wrote down here as I was listening was depth. So you've taken us there. And so when you take astronaut and you take depth, then you really get this really expansive feeling about going places that no one has ever gone before. And as cliche as that might be in the entertainment world, it seems to be kind of true. Now, if you're going to go out there, there has to be vulnerability because you have to not only go, you have to be willing to come back and deal with everybody when you do come back. So for the first time in my life, I think that I've seen, you've just given me this sort of connection between madness and a willingness to just be vulnerable and, and go those go to those places, no matter how risky it could be uh, in your head of maybe not coming back. Yeah. And I think that what he did, you know, like, especially in those days and, and still now people who are trying to be comedians or artists or performers are sort of groomed, you know, where we think we have to present a kind of um, version of ourselves to the world that people want to see. I mean, we all do this every day. You know, you kind of get rid of your rough parts and yep. present your face to the world. And Del was saying, if you want to be funny and you want to be honest and you want to have a laugh that actually connects with the audience, bring that other stuff with you. Forget the face that you, you know, take to your in-laws house, like bring the, you know, the part of you that didn't want to get out of bed in the morning, bring, you know, the weird, you know, just the weirdo, the, the freak, the one that you're afraid will be rejected. That's the one that we want to see on stage. And I think for a lot of people that really, you know, especially in that sort of second city, 1970s class of people um, really resonated and you see it in their work that they're just, you know, going out there and they're, they're unconcerned with the repercussions of, you know, uh, letting their freak flag fly. Isn't that amazing? Could you, could you, I couldn't do it. Could you do it? I don't think I could. You know, I did take a couple classes just as research because I'm not a performer at all. And I found that it's very difficult, very difficult to be that vulnerable. And it, but it's also really incredible to be kind of dipping a toe in an art form that's really collaborative where like the rule is you have to get your fellow performers back. Like they're out there giving you their bare soul. So you better not like negate them. You better make their idea really work. So that was very liberating and cool as well. And burdensome, I would imagine. Um, we see an awful lot, of course, people in this world that uh, carry some escapism in some fashion, whether that's drugs or alcohol or, you know, workaholism. Um, that must be burdensome too. Yeah. I mean, I, I think, Somebody I talked to for this film, you know, I sort of started asking questions in that vein, you know, are comedians more prone to sort of dark thoughts and, and you know, suicide or whatever. And they said, you know, I there's just more attention on them. So, you know, there's probably just as many accountants that go there, but mm -hmm. we're not as excited or intrigued by that because we just we're not looking at them. Yeah. Um, but, I, you know, that said when you are tapping into uh, things that comedy taps into like brutal honesty or um, uh, things that go wrong and, or a, a very honest part of yourself, you know, that's a way of living that is um, 
you know, uh, not without its uh, cost. Yeah. We often say that the Saturday Night Live and Second City are the things in common with all of these comedians, right? Oh, they did Second City. Oh, they did Saturday Night Live. That's what they had in common. Have you discovered that maybe that's not actually the common thread? That maybe Del Close was the common thread? I think that Del Close is the common thread with a lot of this lineage. I mean, he is, whether you loved him or hated him, if you studied comedy from the 1960s to now, you know who he is, you have an opinion about him, and you're probably tapping into something, some idea that he taught at one time or another. So, you know, there are these really magnificent, like, places, uh, like Second City or, you know, before that, The Compass and, you know, National Lampoon is another one, you know, that seemed to magnetize a lot of these people. But the one guy who runs through all of them is Del Close. He was he was in all of these spots and influencing all of these people. That's amazing. So, okay, uh, now let's talk about you. <laughs> Heather Ross is a documentary filmmaker, and um, I, I get curious about your curious. I mean, how <laughs> seriously, like, is it a problem? Do you sit there and you're like, okay, I'm not going down this rabbit hole today. I've got to focus here because I would imagine that you can't look at, I mean, the story of Del Close is not, it was sure would be nice to do something about My Little Pony or Care Bears, <laughs> right? Like, because this is big, beautiful, happy thing. So it, there's a lot to be consumed when you dig into the life of Del Close. So there must be this sort of voracious curiosity appetite that a, a documentary creator has to carry with them. That's funny because I actually kind of think I thought I was getting into some light stuff by taking on this documentary after some of the other stories I had worked on. So, um, you know, the, the, the gravitas follows you, but um, mm. yeah, I, I, that is the great thing about being a filmmaker is that you, and a documentary filmmaker is that you do get to follow your curiosity you get if something keeps nagging at you like the idea of Dell as a character did over the years you get to say you know what screw it I'm going to call whoever I know in comedy and see who can tell me something and I'll bring a camera and I'll see what I can find out and you know that experience has taken me to so many places that I would never have been able to go if I didn't you know wasn't making a, a documentary so it's almost like the experience of learning and following the curiosity is just as much of what this is a part of to me as the final film. Although the final film I'm very proud of. <laughs> the journey and the destination, huh? That's what it sounds like you just, that, that's what you just said. It's pretty great, right? Enjoy the journey uh, and destination is amazing, but really enjoy the journey. Yeah. And I guess, you know, maybe I'm getting some of that from the comedians that I talk to, uh, in this film and from Del Close himself, because, you know, with that brand of comedy, it's so much about the process. It's so much about, I'm not going to clean this up and polish it and, you know, put a bow on it. I'm going to show you my process. I'm going to, this is something that can be taught and done in front of people. So I guess it kind of helps you remove hangups about being perfect or, you know, you can kind of, ex it's like, yeah, art as and filmmaking as an exploration and a process more than, you know, just the final product. As a filmmaker, now I'm not a filmmaker, but I have been around the, you filmy people. Um, and the, there's always two things that are going on. Of course, there's somebody who is immersing themselves into the topic, observing, participating, dancing, if you will. But there's always uh, somebody or a piece that has to still document these moments because as you record all of these things, someone has to say, oh, by the way, that was at seven minutes that that happened. Otherwise, you have a lifetime of footage that you have to go through trying to rediscover what you've already been through. That's now, true. In, in this, is there one piece, one moment in your discovery that really sucked you in that you remember as the most impactful to you? And the way that I see that is that to the point where you lost keeping track because you got so encompassed in the conversation or in the discovery, is there a piece that you really carry with you that hit you that hard? Oh my goodness. I mean, I think we had that experience over and over making this film. Um, 
you know, Dell was not sort of a traditional artist or celebrity. So the record on him is pretty fractured, right? You know, um, he didn't do a lot of interviews. He didn't do a lot of press. So we had to, you know, piece him together in a lot of weird ways. And one of the ways we did that was this crazy comic book he wrote in the 80s for DC Comics called Wasteland, which was sort of ostensibly an autobiographical comic book, but was also sort of a weird horror book. Um, and it was very interesting going back to all these sort of tall tales that he told him throughout his life and seeing seeing the, you know, seeing the art around them, see, seeing how he told them in this format. And there's a story about him learning to eat fire um, from a carny back in, you know, the fifties in, in Kansas. And, uh, you know, he asks the guy, you know, Dr. Dracula, how do you eat fire? I gotta learn. And he says, you know what, kid, there's no, there's no secret to it. There's no magic to it. There's no trick. You just get burned every time. And, you know, that was uh, just a panel that was in the middle of this comic book that was kind of about other stuff. But I kept coming back to that, um, not only because Dell would always uh, pull that trick out at parties and actually like light the living room on fire, but, you know, (laughs) because it really describes something about being an artist or being a comedian. And like, you know, every time you do this thing, you're going to get burned. And I don't know why, but you keep doing it. Sounds like it's a perfect wrap to full circle about vulnerability and a willingness to go to places that no one else is willing to go to, which is remarkable. Um, our guest is Heather Ross, documentary filmmaker, the stories of Del Close, um, and for Mad Men Only. Um, July 29th, Hot Docs Digital, Vortex Media, and it will be released upon the world. Um, all of this. So I, my invitation for all of uh, the shift heads that are lift, listening would be this, is if you've ever laughed at the Tina Fey's of the world or the Second Cities or the Saturday Night Lives and all these, John Belushi, all these people that have sort of come through this, um, then you probably want to hear the story of where an awful lot of it started. Uh, I look forward to learning more and seeing more about it. Um, thank you very much, Heather, for uh, sharing your heart on this and, and all your hard work. Thank you, Shane. It's a pleasure being here. It's the Shift Podcast. Okay, now normally at this time here on the Shift, we have Blaine Kylo. And today, Blaine Kylo has taken a vacation. So we thought, we can do that. And then we started putting together our very own technological world segment. And we very quickly realized we can't do that. But it was too late, so we're going to try anyway, and it's about to be dreadful. Let's hit it, Brennan. technological world and this is normally where i ask blaine kylo about how uh, coaching is going with his kids because he's like canada's super dad and all those things and uh he's not here so ryan how goes the coaching with the kids oh you know they're just uh pitching some balls at the diamond and they're uh you know it's good we brought some you're from fargo all of a sudden (laughs) oh yeah i didn't think blaine (laughs) kylo was from fargo you know, I uh, I watched, I saw a clip of this old sports movie where David Schwimmer like plays baseball with a monkey. That's how I felt right there. Yeah. In that moment, I felt like the monkey. <laughs> Dance monkey. Um. Okay, so where are we gonna go, Ryan? Blaine Kylo would normally take us into some computer things, some gaming things. So why don't you get us started uh, in in that sort of vein? All right, I'll get you started. Well, why don't I talk about computer things and gaming things Ooh, all, at all at once. once? All at once. So, it's no secret that California and other parts of the US are struggling to cope with the massive heat waves and fires and droughts and all that stuff. And one of the issues they're running into is infrastructure, specifically around power. How the heck are we going to cope with all these people that are running their 
you know, their air conditioners at triple the amount of speed and uh, what's the word I'm looking for efficiency as they normally are. So they've had to do some drastic things. Now, we've talked about before how they've asked Tesla drivers and other electric car owners to not charge their cars during peak times of charging phones and other stuff like that. Uh, keep your refrigerator running on a lower cooling, you know, temperature, that kind of thing. Only use air conditioning when you absolutely need it. Well, how about this? Don't buy a gaming computer. There's what? a very interesting new policy, and it's not just in California. It's in six states. California, Colorado, Hawaii, Oregon, Vermont, and Washington. Essentially, what this new, uh, what's the word I'm looking for here, policy is, is they are asking manufacturers of certain tech pieces to not ship them products that run or take a certain amount of energy, not when you're using it, but when you are not using it. The Ooh. idle usage of that tech. Now, most people have gaming computers that they do not turn off. They just run in sleep mode. And the idea here is to stop people from using computers that take a lot of power even in sleep mode. Now, uh, Gaming PC Magazine, they did some tests, and Alienware, which is made by Dell, owned by Dell, cannot ship some of their PCs to California now for this exact reason. Now, a YouTuber named J2Cents uh, posted a video exploring what this... Is ha what is happening here, and the legislation is not super straightforward at all. It's very unclear, of course. Essentially, though, high-end gaming PCs will be exempt from these regulations as long as the machines don't take too much power when they're idle. So the rules are not concerned about how much power you draw when you're using it, mm -hmm. but when you're not using it. That seems smart, though, right? I mean, there was some stat years ago that um, I had read. So this is just sort of an anecdote story. It's not, don't take it as science or evidence. Right. But you know, the, the wall adapters that we plug into everything that, um, you know, whether it's, I don't know, what would you have? Like a lamp is typically just a plug that plugs in the wall that powers the light bulb. That one's pretty simple, right? But your TV yeah. and your phone charger and all of these other things that have an adapter on them that plug into the wall. Yeah. Um, like for me, like my, I have a label printer in my office that has one of those adapter things that if we simply unplugged all of those, cause they burn power all the time. Mm -hmm. The capacitors stay charged. They, I mean, that's probably old technology now, but that's what it used to be. You may used to unplug those things and the little light would stay on for a second or two. And then the light would fade away because that's the way that they're built. Right. And I heard a stat that said, if we had just unplug all of those things, we would drastically drop our electricity usage in general. Absolutely. Absolutely. And, and, and it's a good habit to get into. Unplug your toaster. You know, most toasters these, day, uh, these days have as much technology in them as the first computer you bought in the 90s. Wow. It really, honestly, the microchips and all that inside. And they take a lot of power to power all the lights. Do you want to have a fancy bagel toast with nice little grill lines? Or maybe uh, you put your toast in there and it makes the grilled cheese for you? Well, unplug it doesn't matter when you use it, but the lights, everything to keep that on is a thing. For me, I'm in this weird state where my, for some reason, my gaming computer will not go to sleep. If I ask it to do it, it will just wake up five minutes later. So I just turn it off. And my hmm. electricity bill is thanking me for that. So it, it just, it's kind of funny though. If you can't pass that threshold when you're idling, why not just make people turn their PCs off or make that normal? I don't know. Anyway, weird legislation. Isn't, so, it, isn't it a strange conversation when we keep building these brand new fancy buildings that have lights on the outside to light them up so they're pretty at night, and then here we're talking about unplug your toaster and save electricity? Isn't that messed up? <laughs> yeah, it really is. It, yeah, vanity is really a wonderful is. thing. Oh, man. It, yeah. Well, speaking of, uh, of chips, computer chips, not making anything easy. We talk about forts. Well, you may, you know, you might not be buying an electric car anytime soon, but your Ford F one hundred and fifty also has more technology in it than 
every computer in the world in 1993, right? Like it's amazing (laughs) the amount of tech that goes into these brand new trucks. And dealers, automakers, auto lenders are absolutely cashing in on the shortage of micro trips, which is raising the prices of these brand new cars and the used cars. So essentially what has happened is because everybody is inside due to COVID earlier in the past two years, we use and buy more tech which means there needs to be more supercapacitors and and all that and microchips and we can't make them fast enough and those go into cars too so there is a automotive group called absurd uh asbury asbury they recorded an all-time record of the average per vehicle profit in front end yield of five thousand and four dollars which is the highest it has ever been. 41% higher than it was in the same quarter last year. 41, which is just ridiculous. Now, this shortage isn't getting any better, and I have some bad news coming up after this clip, which is just a reminder as to why we're in this mess in the first place. This is from NBC. Global semiconductor sales totaled $439 billion in 2020, and that's an increase of 6.5% compared to the 2019 total of $412.3 billion, according to the Semiconductor Industry Association. Global sales for the month of December 2020 were $39.2 billion, an increase of 8.3% compared to the December 2019 total. Another big reason for the shortage? Cars are getting more advanced, and they need more semiconductors. In fact, right now, it's the auto industry that's feeling the squeeze in computer chips most acutely. Cars not only need advanced chips to run increasingly complicated in-vehicle computer systems, they also need older, less advanced semiconductors for things like power steering. Hmm. I didn't know that. That's cool. Yeah. Every part of your car has got a little computer in it, which is a problem for people who run computer companies like Intel. Their chief executive, Pat Gelsinger, 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 says the worst of this chip crisis is yet to come. And the number one reason he says this is happening is because China and the U.S. cannot get along. Essentially, China is where most of these chips are made and and the U.S. is where most of these chips are used. The U.S. can't make enough for themselves, so they can't ship it over. And the Chinese also are losing the profits from American companies buying them. So they're not making as much in the first place. They're just kind of making it domestically. So essentially what he's saying, and I'm sure he's also saying this because a bunch of his money comes from China and the business he does there, we would like these two countries to get along better. He says, uh, quote, normalize relations with China, which, okay. Wow. Keep Uh, that in context. Um, Exactly. You know what's interesting? I, I just don't understand it. So when you talk about, I always think about war and maybe this is dark of me, but I always do. I always think about like war things. And when things go sideways, all of the things that we have for war have chips in them. How can we not, right? Like that would be like back in world war one, not being able to make your own bullets. Like it's the craziest thing that we can't make chips just like we couldn't make vaccines in Canada and we couldn't make PPE. Like we couldn't make masks originally so that seems so mind-blowing that we as citizens let our government get away with that yeah so we need to find some solutions to this and i would argue you know calgary i i met a waitress uh, she was amazing she, the best service i've had in years and she's i was like why are you working in at a steakhouse and she's like oh, i'm just doing this till i can get in the tech center, sector and uh, which i found is interesting so if young people want to get into tech. And I keep getting told that Alberta is going to shift to a tech heavy province. Why are we not building facilities to manufacture these crucial things? Why are we not building facilities to manufacture vaccines? Why are we not doing this? Come on, get it together, friendos. Nice. Friendos. All right. So speaking of building new technology, what about tiny little air conditioning units to save on your shipping, Brendan Kelly? Yeah, this one is near and dear to my heart. Vinyl records are melting because of the heat this year in record numbers. Vinyl in record numbers, I know. Um, There's a TikTok user, uh, Matt, or better known as at Matt's Vinyl 2626, if you want to see this video. 
Uh, he posted a video just this week of a Demi Lovato record he put out in the Baking British Sun, and it melts, basically. Uh, I tried to grab some audio from it, but it, there's nothing on it. It's just like a visual of the, the record melting and then him bending it. Um, but this video's gone viral. Uh, it's viewed over 465,000 times by 91,000 different TikTok users. Now, a typical vinyl record can start warping uh, due to heat and temperature at 140 degrees Fahrenheit or 60 degrees uh, Celsius. Um, and that's been happening. Uh, it's, it's affecting, uh, Pitchfork is reporting, it's affecting a lot of indie labels that have been trying to ship records this year, like Bada Bing, Sergeant House, Joyful Noise. Um, they've all had to alert their customers uh, that uh, your records might melt if they're being wow. shipped this year. Yeah, nice. Bada Bing has even gone as far as to delay shipments until the fall because apparently this has just been happening to a rash of their records. So they are looking into ways to try to keep the records cool. Other than that, they're just putting notices on the the shipping packages saying, please don't leave them in the sun. I um I imagine it being like when you leave a chocolate bar in your cup holder in your car and yep. then you go to open it. It was like me with my dilly bar last night that I had to pour into my mouth. You go to open up your record and it just kind of goes bleh, all over your counter. Oh, that's so sad. My goodness. There we go. Uh, Blaine Kylo, we miss you. We look forward to Blaine coming back. Uh, there's our attempt at a technological world here um, on the shift. Uh, speaking of technology, inventor Ron Pompeo passed away on Wednesday uh, from Ronco. Remember Ron from Ronco? Uh, he was the uh, the guy who was always on TV selling things. Uh, Mr. Microphone, Pocket Fisherman, the electric food dehydrator, and on and on and on. So he also, speaking of technology and inventing, he passed away on Wednesday. Thanks for listening to The Shift Podcast. Make sure you subscribe, rate, and review the show and share with anyone you like. Get it on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, and CuriousCast.ca.